right, welcome. This is the Grow to Amazing podcast. This is Tony Mays. And today I have a good friend of mine and a good friend of our families on today. And she's not on just because she's a great friend of the family. She also has an, an awesome story to tell, a story with a lot of challenges, a story of overcoming grief and overcoming uh, mental illness. Uh, but she has really when I met her 11 years ago, you would have never known that this was part of her story, uh, just because it's, it's, it's something that um, it, it's an intensely personal thing that she's chosen now to bring out to the world, but it's something that has definitely shaped her life and has definitely brought her into this world. So uh, Rebecca Stewart is, is probably my wife's best friend. She was our matron of mm -hmm. honor for our wedding. Uh, she was the first person I believe that my wife called after our first date and uh, was... Oh, can I interject? I think I'm sure. responsible for you two getting together. <laughs> so I'm just going to like praise myself at this moment. Okay. Yes. Okay. Continue. You told her, you told her not to be afraid to date an older guy. Is that, is that uh, what you told her? Yeah. Yeah. No, I told her it's okay to go on match.com because that's how I found my husband. Ah, uh, gotcha. 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 Mm -hmm. So yep. Her and her, her and her husband, Montana have four mm -hmm. kids all together. One boy that's in college, three girls. Yep. And that has its own challenges, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, the the thrust of the story today is is Rebecca's has a book out called Unbinding Love, and I'll put a copy of it. I'll put a screenshot up on the video as well. But she's a survivor of a traumatic childhood, a caretaker to her mother, and a cheerleader to those that can't see the light at the end of their caregiving tunnel. So she has had to take care of her mother, who's dealt with schizophrenia for as long as you can remember. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's, uh, can you just tell us, uh, kind of start off a little bit about your story? Yeah, I guess for me, my story starts around seven years old when I first started no noticing that my mom was acting different. Um, mm -hmm. I, I lived with my mom. She was a single mom. My parents were divorced. I had a real minimal relationship with my dad. Like he would take me to the park once a month, you know, take me to McDonald's. That was really all that I knew of my dad. And so mom and I, it was kind of like us against the world. And just like any child, you grow up and you don't know any difference. So my mom held a job. Um, she was pretty debilitated with her schizophrenia. And I just remember apartment getting really messy. And, you know, she was kind of off in her own world and she was starting to enter into psychosis. And I remember one day she threw away all my books. And so I went to school and I told my teacher, I don't have any books because my mom threw them away. I must have done something wrong, you know? And shortly after I was removed from that home. So that was kind of the beginning of, okay, maybe my life is a little bit different than most kids my age and processing what that meant and, yeah. and experiencing the trauma of, you know, it was always me and my mom. And then one day it wasn't just was one that, day. Did, it, did you go to foster care or, or with your dad? Uh, neither. Actually, I went, I went to her parents at first. So okay, my dad okay. came and picked me up and uh, dropped me off to his in-laws and they were, you know, separated. They actually, i never knew them to be together. They were technically divorced. They did eventually get divorced. Mm -hmm. um, but I lived with her parents in Stevens Point for all of second grade. I basically missed all of a grade because they didn't quite know how long it was going to take for my mom to come back. Okay. And they didn't know it at the time, but my mom was severely, severely mentally ill. It was going to take years for her to just kind of come back. Mm -hmm. So um, my grandma was going to raise me and grandpa, and they took me to a Catholic school. And I remember... <laughs> and you, you weren't raised Catholic no. or anything like that. So right? I was so, raised in yeah. public school. And yeah. for anybody that knows the difference, it's like, you know, it's kind of like walking through a prison. That's how it felt like to me. And um, so it was my grandma and my aunt and her sister, my great aunt, and, and, the, and the priest. And he sits down and he says, well, everything looks great with Rebecca, but I just have a question. You know, how long is she going to be here? Because kids will make friends and they'll adjust. And if she has to be uprooted right away, like within a month or two, that's not going to be good for her. And my, my grandma says, oh, it's going to at least be six months. And her sister says, oh, well, at least a year. And then he looks to me and he says, what do you think? And I go, my dad's picking me up tomorrow. And <laughs> <laughs> that ever optimistic, youthful, you know, point of I view. I wasn't being disrespectful. I was just yep. like, 
no, this isn't for me. Thanks. And my grandma like gasped. She was like, Oh father, she doesn't know, you know? And then we went home and I remember I was too tall to reach the phone. So I stood up on a stool and I called my dad and I Mm -hmm. said, dad, you need to come and get me. It's time. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, it's just kind of a God thing. I just knew that I wanted to go back to Oshkosh and back to my dad. And I was very close with my dad's parents. And I don't really talk a lot about that, but I was very close with my grandma and she pretty much raised me during the time when my mom was away. So thankfully I had angels around me to love on me and, and to support me because it really felt like a death. I mean, I remember crying every night, missing my mom. Mm -hmm. Um, We were very close. And so it did, it was a definite beginning of my grieving process. And then when she came back, she wasn't really herself. She was very different. When was the first time you saw her after, after that initial? So it's funny you ask that because, um, I had a memory that I repressed and it was like last summer, we all as a family went to Mackinac Island and you know how there's no cars in Mackinac Island. And it's just like, you're taken around on a horse carriage. And I heard the clickety clock of the horse hooves on the pavement. And that night, you know, without even processing it, I had a dream that I was speaking in front of an audience about mental illness. And I said, I was eight years old when I first went to Winnebago Mental Health Institute. And then like, I woke up and I went, oh my gosh, I was eight years old when I went to Winnebago Mental Health Institute. And then like a movie, it came back um, that I went to go see her while she was still rehabilitating. So she was totally out of it. I remember like like a year after she had been initially committed kind of a thing. Yes. So she had been taken to Winnebago, um, transferred to Madison. She stayed at Madison for very long time. I have over a thousand notes from her stay at Madison that she was, um, she was strapped in a chair in a room and they would keep notes that today Elaine drank her own urine, like really bad stuff. Um, And she would like, she didn't know what she was doing. She would try to eat her nightgown and, Mm. you know, she was hysterical. And back then that's, so they would try different meds, but they would have to restrain them. Mm -hmm. And so she lived that life. And then eventually they knew she needed shock therapy. So she went back to Winnebago where they did the shock therapy. Mm -hmm. And probably right before they did that is sometime I was introduced back to see her and it was in the middle of summer. And I remember she was singing Jingle Bells and her hair was like, it looked like she stuck a finger in a light socket. You know, she was just like running around and I could see just through, like I was out in the hallway because I think at the time staff was like, what do we do? There's a kid here. Yeah. And, and there was like a little slit of a window and I could see like my beautiful mom just frailing around. Mm-hmm. And then they let me in and they put me in like a room with her. And she looked at me and she just bawled. I mean, just like tears. She couldn't process. She couldn't talk. But mm. when she saw me, she cried and cried and cried. And in an attempt to kind of make things better, they picked me up and they put me in horse-driven carriage. And I went around the <laughs> the grounds being like toured by a little, I don't know, it was this guy riding, like steering a horse. And then I even remember the conversation that they had told me that the horse was black and it was supposed to be a horse used in a wedding and Mm -hmm. the, and the, the bride wanted a white horse. So they got this horse (laughs) and it was this whole story. And I was like, this did not happen. I literally thought I was hallucinating it. So that morning from my hotel. Do you remember what you were feeling though at the time? I mean, was it just. Yeah. I remember the question. Yeah. Who brought me to Winnebago when I was seven years old and why was I there? And why did I end up going in a horse ride? Like Mm -hmm. what? That, that can't be true. So I picked up the phone and I literally just called Winnebago mental health Institute. And I asked for the historical uh, it's like a, like a historical society or historical Mm -hmm. department. And I talked to a really nice gal there. And I said, do you guys used to have horse rides? She says, oh yeah, we used to have our own gardens. Mm -hmm. Um, back in the day, that's how they rehabilitated mentally ill was through healthy foods and getting them outside. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the end of that era, but they still had horses and, I was like, wow, that is the strangest memory that I have. And 
mm-hmm. kind of represents the struggle at that time for me, which was adapting to a new, a new normal that it was no longer me and my mom against the world. And now mm-hmm. it was entering into this new phase of number one, accepting that my mom isn't my mom anymore. Mm-hmm. She's different. She's yeah. weird. Uh, yeah. She's not talking like my mom. She's not, she looks like my mom, but <laughs> you know, and then also entering into um, life with my dad. Um, mm-hmm. So your dad did, did eventually take you, take you in then? He did. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. that is, uh, do you, do you still find yourself missing a lot of the memories of your childhood? Yeah. And I think as I have my own kids and experience memories and, and new memories with them, it kind of mm-hmm. makes me up and go, what was I doing when I was this age? And mm-hmm. kind of identifying and grieving all over again, that some of those milestones were missed or, you yeah. know, I was um, in the chaos of adjusting to, you know, adapting to my mom and her illness, sure. um, missing out on stuff, birthday parties. You know, I wasn't in taking swimming lessons and, and golf lessons. And, you know, I look at my kids and how they live and, Dance you know, it was a simple life. Yeah, yeah. It was different. You know, was your dad running his own business back then as well? So he was probably yeah. pretty busy with that also. Yep. My dad was, uh, yep. He still is a business owner and still working and he was definitely uh, involved in that. And so, yeah, it was hard. Definitely. Um, from having a full-time mom that was there all the time. Mm-hmm. I explained it in my book. My mom was sweet and she was nurturing. And then I kind of moved into a household where I remember the first night, like my dad didn't know how to tuck me in. He was like, all right, see you in the morning. You know? And I was like, <laughs> um, this is when we say prayers. And this yeah. is when you tell me you love me. Okay. Let's start over. <laughs> If you want to read me a story, that's probably okay too, or something like that, right? So, yeah. It wasn't like that with him at all. So, yeah, yeah it was a transition. Okay. So, how did that affect you going through like middle school and high school? Were you class, were you like overachiever? Were you yeah. get in trouble? That kind of thing? No, Trying to compensate? I was a total perfectionist, Tony, <laughs> of course. which is where it leads into adult life. Um, total perfectionist. I was a good student. Most of my teachers did not know about my struggle at all. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I have one, I have one or two teachers that were very impactful in my life that I've recently reached out through text message and just said, Hey, you made a difference in my life. I had a first grade teacher that I called and cried to. <laughs> um, and she was just kind of <laughs> shocked and it really blessed her because she had no idea mm-hmm. how much um, she had impacted me. And I think her teachers are so underappreciated, you know, during mm-hmm. a time when things were so unstable in my life, I definitely had teachers and angels stepped mm-hmm. in. So um, I'm assuming you didn't. Oh, so the Catholic school was in Stevens Point. But once you went back to Oshkosh, was that just was that regular public school teachers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually okay. went back to the same school um, okay. that, and, and it was a God thing. I had the same teacher in first grade as I did in second grade. So mm-hmm. Mrs. Benarek, she was one of those angels and she was the one that I called recently. And so if she's listening to this. She's an absolute angel. And mm-hmm. I know before she retired, she didn't feel that way because of everything that's changing in the public school system. She felt almost like she yeah. had failed public school and had failed her kids because of all the stipulations that are put in place on teachers and the difficulty of really maintaining a classroom with Mm -hmm. integrity. And she had felt like she had failed. And I, so when I called her, she was just like, thank you. Oh my gosh. And I said, you know, you hugged me every day before class. (laughs) And sometimes that was the only hug I ever received, you know, because I would come home and my mom was psychotic You know, I lived like that for months before I was taken out of the house. And that's really the trauma that I experienced is hunger, poverty. Um, I still to this day cannot drink powdered milk because my mom was on food stamps. So we didn't have regular milk. We had powdered milk. I don't know why. I don't know why anybody would drink powdered milk. But, (laughs) you know, we had that. And and I remember like eating pea soup a week because that's what we had. Yeah. Um, So I still cannot eat pea soup. And so I was lucky to have angels in my life and people that kind of helped me smooth along into the middle school, high school age, which was the first part of my life where I, I really 
at that point, it was like denial. I did yeah. not want anybody to know I was different. I did not want anybody to know the truth about myself, which was mm-hmm. the lie that I believed that I was damaged goods, mm-hmm. that I was, um, no matter how hard I tried, I was still Elaine's daughter and mm-hmm. I was still impacted by mental health. And um, Did I you think there, she was going to rub off on you or something like that? Or that the, yeah, I mean, I felt yeah. like I, we were one family unit mm-hmm. and every time there was a family reunion, you know, I was reminded of that, that we were different. And most yeah. of the time she wasn't there because she was in the hospital. Yeah. You know, my mom would have two, three hospitalizations a year. So mm-hmm. her, um, her mental illness was so severe that uh, she literally got lost in her apartment in her forties. Wow. Like she just would get lost inside her apartment, wrote um, journals about it. You know, it's hard to understand and wrap your brain around it because most of us kind of take that part for granted. We can get up mm-hmm. and get dressed and we can go to work. Um, but for some of us that are in between and, you know, it might be depression or anxiety where, you know, today's a bad day and you know that you just can't function yeah. for her. It was like that every single day. But then it was the paranoia. Oh, my neighbor thinks that I'm doing this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. I think I'm getting a message off the TV. I think that so-and-so is going to commit suicide. And it was just a constant thing that she played in her head. And it prevented her from living a successful and happy life. And so that was, you know, that was hard to witness. But then there were also beautiful things that she did too (laughs) that... I talk about in my book too. Yeah. Yeah. So when did, uh, once you got close to graduating high school, what was your, what did you look at your path? What did you want your path to be coming out of high school? Yeah. So high school was like the end of the bad years. I think it kind of went into a little bit too of early marriage. It's kind of like when you're newlywed and you're just kind of trying to figure it all out and you make a lot mm-hmm. of dumb mistakes. Yeah. Um, for me, it that was, never hap- that never happened to me. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that works with caregiving too. So when you become a caregiver, so I had become a legal guardian to my mom at age 21. So in college is when it really picked up for me that I, that I had to step up to the plate and be responsible for my mom. What kind of a shock to you was that though, that you had to be the one making all the decisions? Total shock. I had yeah. no idea. You know, I had no idea. Like, it was like one day I got a letter in my college dorm, you know, like uh, <laughs> the, ma- the matter of Elaine. And I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go to this. I'll, I'll leave Madison and go to Oshkosh and I'll sit in the hearing. And um, I don't think my mom was there. I just remember like all these attorneys and people and they deemed her mentally incompetent. And then they saw me sitting there and they said, okay, is anybody here, you know, with family? We've got one brother on the phone. Okay. uh, Who's going to be guardian? And they all looked at me and I was like, hi. Yeah. I had no idea. And, and then they were like, okay, her daughter is 21. Yep. She's in college. Okay. Perfect. Check. And I walked out of there and I was like, what just happened? You know? So, I mean, that was literally like, I was like, oh, can I? you know, I got to get back to my friends and I got a party, party this weekend party to go to you know? tonight. Yeah. <laughs> but my mom's responsibility is all in my hand. I, yeah, I can imagine that being a complete shock and just, what do you do? And then next? two months later, I got a bill for $300,000 in my name. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I remember just thinking like, I'm never going to pay this bill off. Like yeah. I'm going to live just totally in debt the rest of my life. But that was wrong. And I had to get an attorney and that later that attorney was like, nope, I'll just write a letter. She's an SSI recipient. You're not Mm -hmm. financially responsible. So there was a lot of early mistakes and things that I learned from experience because no one writes a book on how you take care of someone like this and how you navigate through social security, medical assistance, Medicaid, finding a social worker, working with your doctor, helping someone that's on antipsychotics that doesn't want to be on them. They don't want to be on meds because they think they're fine and they're really off in la la land. And, and so that was, yeah, that was the beginning of getting lots of phone calls from her landlord that she was streaking naked in her apartment. And it was becoming really obvious that I was going to have to step up I was going to have to either take care of her myself or find mm-hmm. someone willing to take care of her. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, it, it sounds to me like it's, it was getting to the point where you could, you probably wanted to take care of her yourself 
yeah. to get back to the two of you again kind of a thing but did you realize you couldn't yeah so at that point i was i was pretty scared of my mom um yeah. my mom had a really strong personality she you know her personality without mental illness is like cheerful and bubbly and she was attractive and blonde and you know that's mm -hmm. how she got landed my dad i mean she was <laughs> she was like a knockout bubbly personality but then when mental illness hit her it made her paranoid it made her um turn inward it made her stay away from her friends and family and all that so it changed her mm -hmm. and then in her later years it was like phase you know mental illness doesn't get better with age necessarily. That's a, that's a hard thing to accept. But as we age, we have to all kind of accept that, right? Like our bodies mm -hmm. and our minds, they work a little bit slower. And so for her, that was kind of the phase of clinging to independence, which if it were me, I would be the same way. Mm -hmm. She was clinging to her independence, but she was also like kind of scary about it. And also you enter into psychosis. So um, she would get bizarre thoughts in her head and there was nothing you could do to get those thoughts out. So I was kind of this young, meek, like perfectionist people pleaser. And so instead of dealing with things head on like I can now as an adult, I was really just kind of terrified of her. And I was like, how can we like hit the easy button and just skip yeah. forward? And uh, the first assignment that I had was to move her into a CBRF and her social worker helped me with that and called and said, this is what she needs. She needs this placement. And Which so, is a, is a community-based rehab facility? Residential right? facility. Residential. Yep. It's exact, okay. yep. It's a, it's a house that's run by, at the time it was a family and they had nursing staff there all the time to help you with your meds and cook and clean for you and kind of like assisted living, but it looks like a home. And, um, my mom had been living in her apartment, her low income apartment for 10 years. So she had a lot of stuff in that one bedroom, teeny tiny apartment. And, you know, being young and naive, I was like, I'll do it in a day. I'll just, yeah. <laughs> I'll just open her apartment and I let everybody come in. And now I like think, oh, I got rid of her dishes. I got rid of family heirlooms. And <laughs> I was like, I remember just kind of winging it, giving yeah. away furniture because I couldn't fit it in her room. And I made her a really cute room. And I, this whole time I sent her with my 93-year-old grandma, her mom. Yeah. So her mom took care of her for a week so that I could move her into assisted living. And then I did tell her and I picked her up and I was like, took her to the park. And I said, mom, your apartment's gone and you have a new place to. And I had taken her there. It wasn't like I totally, mm -hmm. you know, Just dropped like, it on her. Yeah. yeah. I took her there and she <laughs> liked it. And she said, yeah, I'll live when I'm 80. So, <laughs> you know, there was, yeah. again, you know, everybody wants to live independently. And I think mm -hmm. when you're a caregiver, when you have parents that are aging and you have to make a decision for them, mm -hmm. it's incredibly difficult. And yeah. when you're young, you don't have that experience and you don't, so it was very scary for me. It was, yeah. um, that's when I met my husband. So we were dating and he remembers me just kind of going, oh, like I couldn't sleep for a week. I was so nervous about it, but she actually was a trooper. Like she was, yeah. she kind of glided in. And I remember her saying like, this is a princess room. I love it. <laughs> and I slept with her the first night cause I was worried for her. Yeah. Um, and then after, so since then she's been receiving help and been pretty good about that. So did you, uh, you'd mentioned you met Montana when, while you were in college and while you were going through all this, did you have a hard time making friends during college and things like that? Yes. Or not? Yeah. I wouldn't say that I had a hard time, but I was so busy and removed from the college experience. I know yeah. one of the questions I get is, oh, you're a Badger fan, like football. I went to one Badger football game. <laughs> um, and it wasn't my idea. And I had, I just felt so removed from the culture because I was driving on the weekends to see my mom. Um, you know, most of my college experience, she was living in that apartment, but I remember going mm -hmm. through and I wash all her clothes. I would take out rotting food out of the fridge for many, many years. She ate the same foods over and over again because she would, dementia was filling in, mm -hmm. um, probably from the shock therapy and things that she had experienced with her brain. Yeah. So I was living life like a four-year-old and I was in my early twenties. Yeah. yeah. So, so you had a lot of surface relationships, but you didn't have the time to get to know anybody or, and most kids that age probably couldn't handle mm -hmm. that 
that scene or that you know that yeah. much emotion or something like that i'm guessing how did how did you and montana met on match as well since yes, you're we the one that encouraged jill how did how did <laughs> yeah. that go initially when did you, how long did it take before you could tell him everything oh gosh can you, can you share that or do you want to share that if you don't want to that's I'm okay actually, too i'm actually a person that shares that's why okay. i have a podcast where i talk about suicide mental health sex all of it um, I, sh I shared everything with him on the first date, but mm -hmm. it's a little bit like, he came oh, back yeah, for like... a second date then. So <laughs> no. Right. Yeah. Um, I think I was, well, we had, we had emailed, so I kind of like kept him at a distance. He had to work a little bit, so we didn't meet for three months Okay. Um, before we kind of exchanged emails. And then I went was on this when he was traveling a lot and things like that for work. Yeah. So he was working in Madison and, oh, okay. right. and he was working at the Milwaukee stockyards in Madison, which is weird. Okay. And then I was in school in Madison. So that's how he found my picture and then he mm -hmm. lost it and had to go back. And he has this whole story about how he first emailed <laughs> me. And, um, I was always very honest with him about it. That's all I can say. And I think that in terms of my trauma and everything I had been through, I didn't tell him fully everything until years into our marriage because mm -hmm. I was still processing them as well. Yeah. And he had his own layer of stuff. It was just different from my stuff. You know, he okay. had parents that were still married. I had parents that were divorced. He had mm -hmm. a single family growing up. I had a blended family. Yeah. But then he had his own, everybody has something. So I would say that he had a high level of compassion for me. And then yeah. I did for him. It was just different. So. Yeah from the beginning, we clicked. Like, yeah. I, I know by the third date, I knew I was marrying him. And <laughs> I think after eight months, we were engaged, so. <laughs> <laughs> and then when was your wedding? Good. If you engaged at eight months, you were married at what? Well, like 2006, year? July. 2006, so okay. I had graduated college in 2004. So okay. it was pretty quick. We had a year-long engagement. And um, yeah, so. Okay. And then the girls started, when did, so your mother, she was in the assisted living type facility. When did she, when did you have to transition her to full-time care facility? Mm -hmm. When did that happen? Oh, so she had about, she had some pretty good mental stability during that time, but she had problems with her teeth, mm. which I talk about in the book. Um, she had refused to go see a dentist. She just didn't want to go. So I would drive her to get her teeth cleaned and stand out in the snow, pregnant. Mom, come on. We got to go get your teeth cleaned. Becky, I am not going. I am not getting, <laughs> they're not going to do it. And so all her teeth rotted and it was a real problem because um, this is, this was kind of one of the first lessons where I had to, as guardian, make a decision. Yeah. And it was slightly illegal because I had to find an orthodontist that would pull all her teeth out without her knowing it. Mm. Yes. <laughs> and it was one of the best, it was the best surgeon. And I had a friend that knew him and we explained the situation. So I got her to go thinking it was a consultation and she wanted her teeth to be whiter. So I said, okay, we're going to go and talk about getting you whiter teeth. Let's go in. And so she laid in the chair and they knocked her out and they pulled all her teeth out and gave her dentures in a day. Wow. And I, I, um, she woke up and like blood was dripping out of her mouth and she goes, Hey, let's go out and have some breakfast. And she had like no idea, you know, what had happened. And so then I have to explain to her and I'm like, come on, let's get in the car. And I said, we're going to go back. And, um, remember how you always wanted white teeth. Now yeah. you have them, but they come in and out. Yeah. And she was like, I am not talking to you. Like she figured <laughs> it out and she didn't talk to me for three months. Wow. Fair yeah. enough. Okay. So it was, you know, I didn't want her to have heart disease. I didn't want her to, you know, when your teeth start to rot, you can get really sick. Yeah. Well, then that she ended up with the spiked white blood cell count. And that's a big problem when you're on Clozeril. So that's the medicine she's on. So they switched her to Seroquel, which is a sister drug. And then she got sick mentally. So she started getting psychotic and she went to um, Mendota Mental Health Institute, which is mm -hmm. one of the best geriatric facilities you could ever have a loved one go to, you know, gets mm -hmm. a lot of bad rap, you know, Ed Gein yeah. was like living there. So a lot of people hear it and they think never, I would never let my mom or dad go there, but 
I have to give them a shout out that they have the best doctors, the best mm -hmm. psych nurses. My mom had so, so much. It's a tough job. There. I can't imagine doing that job, but personally, oh, yeah. no. And, and it, when you walk in, it's a little scary. I'm not going to yeah. lie. Like you have your own room, but you have no bathroom. You have to like bang on the door to go to the bathroom. It sounds awful. It's, it looks like, I mean, it is, it's a building from the 1800s and, mm -hmm. but to give you an idea of how well they got her, not only back, back on her collateral, they got her, um, rehabilitated, but they gave her her own room with music and she listened to oldies. And when she had to leave, she didn't want to because she had adapted to, I, I live here and help others. You know, mm -hmm. she was like washing counters and she had a sense of purpose there and she had maintained friendships with all the nurses so when she left, they all cried and I had yeah. to move her into a new place, yeah. you know? And, um, so I just, when I talk about Mendota, like I've left reviews, they're amazing mm -hmm. there. They are experts there in mental health. And, mm -hmm. um, so then I had to move her to her hometown, Stevens point, because they didn't have any housing in Oshkosh. And that's another thing I'll talk about is the lack of housing for people that are in between living independently and, and needing help. Mm -hmm. We just don't have enough CBRFs, facilities, that type of thing. So at the time there was no option. So I couldn't have her come to La Crosse. It was a different County and mm -hmm. somehow Portage County accepted her. Um, but she was so she was still under Winnebago County. This is another kind of thing I don't need to mention, yeah. but there's a lot of politicalness against which county is going to pay the bill for her because she's yeah. so expensive. Yeah. So Winnebago paid for her to live in Portage County for like eight years or something and oh. found a really nice place for her, but it was hard for me to visit. So mm -hmm. the last stage of her life was coming here to La Crosse and getting her close to family. Yeah. And that has been a very tough phase as well, because her body physically and mentally, um, she's 78 years old now, so mm -hmm. she's not able to hold conversations anymore. Um, some days I get a little glimpse of her, but yeah. it's mostly like loving COVID some doesn't, of Alzheimer's. Yeah. yeah, COVID doesn't help either. So, yeah. No. So how have you, uh, I'm the stress levels for you going through all this, uh, how have you dealt? I mean, how has that affected your family? How has that affected you and how do you deal with it? Yeah. So I suffer from anxiety and dealing with this every day is a heavy burden. Yeah. And, um, some days I'm like, it's just like anybody. Some days I'm ready to take it on. I'm ready to go to her care conference. I'm ready to make decisions. I'm going to visit her. I'm going to talk to her. Other days I'm just like, Lord, I can't handle this. I need you to take care of her. Yeah. I need to focus on myself. And there was this constant battle between what, how do I know when I need to step in or how can I know to kind of let this go and surrender? Mm -hmm. And that was the first realization for me that, that number one, I needed a faith because I needed mm -hmm. God to take some of this for me. When did, and, what year, what year was this that you really felt started to feel that? Do you know? Well, I know recently it was when we left our Lutheran church and went to first free. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. a big transition. Oh, yeah. I think it started before then. Cause I yeah. think you were when, we went to the, <laughs> when we went to the Lutheran church, you know, we, we were lit up at the time for that church too. We were baptizing our kids and going mm -hmm. to church every Sunday, but we wanted to live an active life for Christ. We wanted yeah. to start engaging and we wanted, we were interested in what that would look like. And so I started going to, um, like women's conferences, Christian conferences, mm -hmm. and I started really actively praying for my mom and the situation and praying for myself that I knew I wasn't enough to deal with all of it. And I also was dealing with daily migraines. I was, a I was a mess, you know, emotionally. And my husband bared a lot of that for me because, he knew that that was just the reality of my life was that I had been through a lot. And then I was also had this like epiphany in my thirties about the sexual abuse that I experienced growing up that I had mm -hmm. kind of tucked away, like under the rug somewhere that that happens to a lot of people. It's no big deal. Well, then I started, you know, I think it's a process of having your own children and they yeah. hit that age and you go, well, Oh, and I was that age, you know, I was going to mental wards and doing this and this and this and, and with the sexual abuse, that kind of hit me that I need to process this. So from, from your mother or from another person in the family or 
Yeah, not my parents. Another okay. person in the family. I actually had two abusers that yeah. um, mm. kind of at different times that I had experienced. Um, so yeah, more re- more life. repressed memories kind of coming back mm-hmm. to give you more trauma. Yes. And yeah. and just kind of just like, when you need it, just when you need it at the most, right? Yeah. <laughs> but God is so amazing. He he gives yeah. it to you like when you're ready for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, for me it was I was starting to figure out the caregiving stuff. I was still working at it. Um, obviously no one is going to do it perfectly, especially with kids and a marriage and you're kind of balancing all those things. For me, it was, um, I, yeah, like he presented it to me and then I was like, okay, Lord, I can process this. I can pray about this and told my husband about it. Like I had never said that that had happened. So I had to really process that. And and it was just love and compassion. So I was really grateful for that. And um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that other than <laughs> that, you know, it's a major like thing that I'm still dealing with even today that, yeah. you know, God's got to take some of that for me. And um, do you think it's something you'll talk to the girls about eventually? Yes. I really actively try to work hard to talk to them about things like sex Mm -hmm. and like abortion and like things that I want my kids to know so that they understand that they're not like presented to the world. And then they're like, mom, you didn't tell me about any of this stuff. So Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the maybe assumptions when you homeschool, because we homeschool is that, oh, we're going to like shelter our kids and put them in a bubble. Yeah. And I actively don't want that. My yeah. kids know a lot about mental health. They've kind of, you know, inherited They've a seen passion it. Yeah. for it. They've yeah. seen it. Yeah. They know that they have a grandma that is really sick and, and she loves them, but she just is limited. And then they have other grandma that can do anything. And so, yeah. you know, what a blessing that they have both that they can see that and, and, and learn a lesson mm-hmm. in life. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, you decided a couple of years ago that you needed to, had you always done things like journaling or anything like that to try to yes. get your thoughts out? I started journaling when I was in the third grade. <laughs> My dad read it in the sixth grade and he found it and was like teasing me. And I said, give me back my damn journal. Like it was like the first time I swore because I was so mad at him. Um, it was really cute stuff. Like yeah. I have a crush on Joey G, you know, like, I, <laughs> um, so I started writing at an early age. And then when I was an adult, and even early on in my marriage, I journaled as a way to let it all out so I could sleep at night and not worry about things. Um, mm-hmm. and that has been really healing for me. I think I just adore the writing process and it's a discipline and a skill. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, one day what- I, the oh, story, go ahead, go ahead. as you know, is we were in Alpha. So at First Free, we had signed up for Alpha and we wanted to make new friends at church. And we also mm-hmm. wanted to, again, continue on our, our faith, faith journey and find out more about Christ and mm-hmm. why he came and what's the message. And, and in that um, course, they take you through a Holy Spirit night where you just listen to music and you get quiet and you just listen to the Lord and what you know, everybody has a different experience. Like some people they're like, nothing happened or some people they laugh or some people they cry. And I heard it in my soul that God wanted me to write a book about my mom. Mm. And I even had this conversation. It went like this. No, Lord, I can't do it. I'm homeschooling. (laughs) What? No one's going to want to read this stuff. No. And then he was like, get your kids involved. This can Mm. be a homeschool lesson. This can be a, a family thing. Mm-hmm. And so then I was like, okay, all right, I'm going to do it. The Lord asked me to do it. So I'm going to do it. <laughs> no, he's telling you to, that you need to do it kind of a thing. <laughs> right. And this was a couple of years ago, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. 2019 okay. was 2019. about when I really um, decided that I was going to do it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I can talk about that process if you want. If you're sure. Interested. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, So I had a friend who wrote a book and she was like, okay, this is how I wrote a book. And it's a school called SPS. So it's self-publishing school and you sign up and you 
$4,000 to enter the program. I don't know if that's what it is now. Hmm. It's a little bit of an investment. The way I saw it is it's like taking a class. So I want to learn how to write a book. I want to learn the processes of doing it. And they show you in like a course how to do it. Hmm. Um, And then they take you through each thing and you have a Facebook group. So you have other people going through it as well. And they're kind of cheering you on. And they tell you, you can write a book in three months. And um, so I signed up for that. And it took me longer than that because I was homeschooling and doing 10 other things, you know, taking care of my mom (laughs) and all that. So I would say the process was a two-year project that actively took about eight months for me to really publish. And um, Do you think you would have gotten it done without going through SPS? No. No. No one knew who I was. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't have a platform. I wasn't on social media, not in a professional way. So it was really my first act of, yes, I'm going to do this. I will publish. And Mm -hmm. so for anybody who really is serious and maybe someone's listening now that they have a message or they want to share something, Mm -hmm. you can do it. It just takes, it takes the actual active decision of, yep, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do it. Did you have to start to treat it like a job almost though too, that you had to yes, dedicate yourself to it? had to, to be it. priority. Yeah. And it was no coincidence. I had just read a book. Um, it's like Just One Thing by Gary Keller. I think he's the famous uh, realtor that the Keller realtor. Oh, okay. Realty. okay. Sure, sure. Um, he wrote a book, Just One Thing or The One Thing, which really just the takeaway of the book is you can't disperse yourself in 20 areas or you're never going to be great at one thing. Mm-hmm. Multitasking is actually and not good for you. So I am the queen at multitasking. (laughs) I, you know, talk on my phone, you know, I've got kids over here and, and it's really a downfall. So I had to retrain myself and I had, and I actually had a conversation with the Lord. I said, okay, Lord, you know, I'm not a morning person. So if you get me up at 5.00 AM, I will write the book for you. I will get it out. And every morning he did. And I had a calendar. They teach you this in SBS, like Every morning, you just after you write for 20 minutes, you just exit off your calendar and then you go along your day. And before mm-hmm. you know it, you have chapters written. And so the active phase cool. was about three months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did that help you with your healing journey, getting some of those words out on the paper? Very healing. It yeah. was very healing. And what, how so? Um, processing all these memories from childhood that I had shoved under a rug somewhere because I wanted everyone to know I was perfect and, you know, Mm -hmm. perfectionist, that type of thing. And it was really healing to accept those parts of myself, my childhood, my mom, and -hmm. also identify that she was actually really an amazing individual that she went above and beyond her diagnosis. She didn't Mm -hmm. let that keep her in a corner. Although it's, you know, she was getting lost inside her apartment. At the same time before that, she went and got a teaching degree. She was extremely brilliant. Um, It's kind of like that movie, A Beautiful Mind, where they show like they're just so astronomically bright, but they can't, Mm -hmm. there's an element to that, to schizophrenia. They are bright and they're like ahead of their time. And, and so my mom was like that. And I think all of that and processing that in the end was like, God gave me this gift. Kind of wrapped it up. It was wrapped it all up into Yeah. Yeah. But God gave me the gift. Like Mm -hmm. I get to choose to look at the beauty in everything of this. Like Mm -hmm. why Lord, why is there mental illness? Why did my mom have to have it? (laughs) And you know, you start answering those questions. Well, it was like the fast track to compassion. It was the fast track to surrendering my life to him. Mm -hmm. And I think where I got also with that is as I was um, on Facebook I remember I've been on schizophrenia.com for like 10 years and I offer advice to people that are new to the schizophrenic walk. And one of the caregivers had posted and said, are there any other carers here who want to commit suicide? And everyone jumped on and was like, here's a number you can call. And I just knew it. I was like, this is the reason why I need to talk more about mental health and talk about what I've learned because being a caregiver is such a heavy burden and it's Mm -hmm. scary. And many of us that are helping our loved ones with mental illness have mental illness ourselves, you know, all have some element of it. And I think that was the real pivotal moment for me. It was like, okay, 
I've got to figure this out in a way that I can present it in a book that people can read it and relate. They can hear the stories and go, yep, my life's been chaotic. Mm-hmm. And then I talk about the four pillars, with it, which is grace, uh, faith, grace, surrender, and hope. Mm-hmm. And really all in anyone's life, you can take that and, and yep. you can apply it to your life. But if you are a caregiver, if you are taking care of yourself and someone else, you really need to hone in on that because if you don't, like on the airplane, if you don't give yourself oxygen first, you can't mm-hmm. help someone else. Is that, was that a big struggle for you was taking care of yourself first? Absolutely. It yeah. still is. It still is. My kids get fed the most beautiful lunches and it's three o'clock and I haven't eaten lunch. <laughs> it happened yesterday. Okay. <laughs> I am still dealing with, and why, why can't I say, you know, I'm going to have cake for lunch. I'm going to, you know, like, why do yeah. I deny myself? Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's really hard to retrain your brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And what I would imagine also the turning of the book into something to give help to another is also part of that healing journey and, and kind of taking the next step with it, transforming it. Yeah. So the book hit bestseller in three categories. I think within yeah within the first launch and the launch was so. Also, I'll talk a little bit about spiritual attack because it's real. Mm-hmm. I went through such a spiritual attack three months before the book launched that I had to pray every day, I had to protect myself. It was like I was getting migraines. Things went wrong with the formatting. You know, there's all these mm-hmm. things that is kind of behind the scenes when you write a book and you publish and <laughs> getting a team together. But I have to say through that, I, I pushed through it because I knew that Satan didn't want that book to get out. God yeah. wanted it out for him. Yeah. It was his book. And um, the beauty of it, there was one night where I was up all night. I was just completely the sense of worry. Like, first off, who the heck am I? Who's going <laughs> to really learn from this message? Who's going to really mm. want to read this stuff? Like it was, and it's a little bit vulnerable because I'm talking mm. about myself and yeah. I don't like that. I want all these I'm intensely doing the, personal stories. Yeah. Yes. That, I'm doing the yeah. opposite of what I've done my whole life, which is I've hidden and tried to show everybody I'm perfect. Like you said, <laughs> 11 years ago, people see me in festival. They're like, oh, she's got life perfect. She's got these cute little kids. No, yeah. actually, I'm in hiding. Okay. So this was the first, like, this is who I am. This is my my story. And it was, it was like crippling. And then I remember getting up, I barely slept. I checked my email and it's somebody that I know through my mom's nursing home that I've never had a relationship before, but she Mm -hmm. signed up to be on my launch team. And she was like, your book did this for me. Like Mm -hmm. I have goosebumps going through this in my life. This has applied to me. Your section on suicide applies to me. So I like threw that in last minute. I'm like, I'm just going to talk a little bit about suicide and how to talk to your loved ones about it. And it was just kind of like a, God just said, like, put it in, you know, and that was her thing. She was like, I'm dealing with that in my family. Mm-hmm. And I just had tears. I was like, okay, Lord, this is it. You, this is why you wanted this out. And it's not yeah. about me. And I'm just going to move out of the way. So then we hit bestseller in three categories. I've had people that I don't know mm-hmm. that are like, thank you for talking about this. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's powerful. It's obviously not clinical. I'm not going to tell yeah. you how to, what meds to take or anything like that. It's really more of a book for people who are loving on someone with mental illness so that, mm-hmm. so that they're not suicidal like that mm-hmm. poster was on, on boards that I had read. I, I just wanted, I just felt like God was saying that he loves caregivers and that if you're listening to this and you are taking care of someone, it could be that you're a parent. It could mm-hmm. be that you have an uh, um, elderly parent that now you're in charge of, you know, it could be that you're in um, healthcare and you're a nurse. Yeah. Like God has a heart for caregivers. You've been given this blessing. It's, it's such an honor and it's such a, it's difficult. You know, I yeah. think no, it's, the hard, it's not the hardest all jobs. rosy. You know, and, and when you are in that situation, other people look to you to see, are you positive about it? Are you complaining about it? It'd be very easy to stay in a victim mentality. Yeah. 
Definitely, definitely. So what does, uh, and let me just talk quick. So just, I think I mentioned it before. I'll put a picture up on the, on the video too. The book is Unbinding Love. You can get that on Amazon. You can either get it paperback or Kindle and, and get it delivered either way that works for you. Rebecca's got a podcast called Cheering Past Challenges where she talks yeah. about all of this in much more detail than we could go into today. But one last question, what, what, does, what does your typical day look like right now? I mean, how, what's your new normal? Yeah. Yeah. So right now it's giving God the first moment I wake up and I talk about it in my book. It's my level of self-care. So I know that if I don't get up and, and come to the father, read my Bible, give myself that time to process my day, it's not going to go well. And mm. so um, it's really living out the advice that I've given which is difficult. Some mornings I sleep in and then I have to run kids to the dentist. <laughs> and, you know, and I think that's the beauty of it is when you're an author, you're not an expert. You're just saying, yeah. I've been through this. I know the struggle. And I just know that when I take time for myself, I'm a better mom. So mm -hmm. I try to do that every day, whether it happens or not, totally. It's, 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 it's a struggle, but I would say that I actively meet God during the day in the morning um, I teach my kids. I homeschool them. I love that time with them. Um, I am a stickler to a schedule. We do the same subjects beginning to end. We finish school, then it's activities. That's that and perfectionist mindset coming through, right? So totally. <laughs> kids are not getting out of math tests. They have to do yep. them. Um, yeah. It's like an acceptance of myself yep. that yep. that's okay. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about the rest of your day? family time, husband time. Yeah. It's really like I have weekly things that I keep in check so that I'm mentally sane. So Tuesday's my day. My husband watches the kids and I'll golf or get together with friends or go out to eat. And then Thursday is his day. Um, Friday has typically been date night. Even through COVID, we have stuck to our dates. Awesome. Sometimes it's just going out for nachos and playing cards. Well, that's, that works too. So, um, and I, I think that's, I think that's one thing people don't think about a lot with marriage is how much work you actually have to put into it to make it worth, to, or to make it work. If you're not working at it, 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 it ain't yeah. working. That's just, and I think <laughs> <laughs> we know this, right? Like yeah, we absolutely. don't have a perfect marriage. No marriage is perfect. You're going to have hangups. And it was an emotional year. Let's be honest. There was yeah. a lot of emotions going on. So you're going to feel that internally and a lot of questions. Your spouse may not have um, adjusted to the pandemic like you have. Like we had a little bit of, you know, my husband was like, I'm not going to wear a mask. And I was like, yes, you will. And so will everybody you work with, you know? So there was a little <laughs> bit of, oh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A little more leeway. He owns his own business, so yeah. he can try, he can try to do those things, but yeah, yeah. that's where you have to have a heart to heart. So we did it. marry. We, I actually had to go a little bit more lenient and he had to go a little bit more careful. So we had to, we had to meet each other and that yeah. is so important. And, um, I get emotional about it because like people been criticized for that. Like, don't go to a restaurant. I'm like, look, I'm going to go because I also have a thing called mental health yeah. and a marriage and I'm not willing to let those things slip and slide. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's really important and healthy and there's, you can do it. You can have a date in your own house if you want to lock the kids in a room and mm -hmm. I don't know, there's other ways, but for us, it's like, we know what we can do and we're, we're actively being sa as safe as we can. And yeah. I think that's very important. Do the best you can and do that do your self-care, you do your work on your marriage, work with, work with your kids. How yeah. have the kids, how have the kids come through everything with your mom and things like that? Um, they're good. Each kid is a little bit different depending on how, um, where they're at maturity wise. Actually the baby is the one that misses her the most because mm -hmm. she was the closest with my mom because she didn't understand if like my mom swore or started undressing. So my mom in that phase, I talk about it in my book about dementia, where she doesn't mm. keep her clothes on. She's not making a lot of sense when she talks. She doesn't really, she's in her body, but she's not really living. And yeah. that's a really difficult um, process to walk through. So the baby who's now just turned eight, she <laughs> can like 
hang with grandma and she's like, that's okay. I'm, you know, grandma, like put your sweater back on. That's all right. Whereas the 14 year old's mortified. She's like, mom, don't make me go back in there. (laughs) You know, so I don't, but the underlining, like the, the takeaway for the girls is that they know that their grandma loves them. They know all of the struggles been with me through the walk with the book. So I have I and when I do a podcast like this, I let them listen to it so they understand it. I don't hold that away from them. Again, it goes back to having these conversations, uh, some of the tough conversations about it. My kids have anxiety as well. And there's like a myth that kids don't have anxiety. No. I don't know where that came from, but it's false. Like kids have it. So then I say, this is what I do when I have anxiety. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes I put on music, I have to distract myself. And so I kind of normalize it for them versus telling them, no, they don't have it. Yeah. Oh no, you're fine. Or you should feel telling them what they should feel or something like that. instead. That never makes you feel good when someone says, no, you don't feel that way. You're fine. (laughs) Like, wait a minute. I do feel this way. Um, I had a daughter that had a panic attack out on the tennis courts because there was a storm coming in and the rain was coming down and she felt responsible for her little sister. And when she went to open the door, the door wouldn't open. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, she like envisioned like the lightning, you know, killing them. And she had this panic. And then for two, three years, I couldn't get her to go out if it was overcast. So we had to deal through that. Yeah. Kids go through it as well. Like, Mental Mm -hmm. health is so important and no one talks about it. No one says, okay, this is what you do when your child has a panic attack. So Mm -hmm. I just thought, okay, this is what cast challenges is about. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about kids and anxiety. We're going to talk about our own anxiety because Lord knows I don't want to talk about my own anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have any of that. No, not at all. But yeah. So anything, any last words that you wanted to add, uh, any thing you want to close with? Um, okay. Two things. Uh, I always say this and it's important to say, if you're listening to this and you have mental health issues or mental illness, you are not a lost cause. Um, my mom had a little thing on her TV was a bunch of different nuts, like almonds, peanuts, and then it said, we're all a little nuts. <laughs> so true. Yeah. So yep. there's that. We all have it. We have to, as a society, be responsible in helping our friends and family that suffer from it and say, hey, you're not alone. I'm here for you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when can I check back with you? Can I give you a call next week? That's important. Um, the second thing that I want to leave your viewers with is this awareness that we need to do more for people that are in between, for people that, um, and I, I 100% am for people living independently. Mm -hmm. that's not for everyone. Some people really need help. They really need someone to help them arrange their medication. So they take it properly. um, So they get a shower so they can have a life of integrity. And Mm -hmm. here in La Crosse County, we don't have enough housing. We don't have enough CBRS and -hmm. many of them kind of are institutionalized. Like I've looked at some of them and I'm like, I wouldn't want to live there. I want to live in a home. So we need to bring that back. And the problem is there isn't enough funding because in the 80s, they did it right. They had these homes that looked like houses Mm -hmm. and um, you could talk about God there. You could pray, you could sit around a table. And one of the most impactful things I ever witnessed as a a nine-year-old when my mom was still rehabilitating was Mm -hmm. I got to go and spend some time in a women's shelter. It was a CBRF where only women that were mentally ill lived and there's probably like eight of them and they were there supporting each other, having meals together. Some of the best like home cooked meals, like they made these mm. baked beans that were like out of this world. It had bacon. <laughs> and it was like, mm-hmm. you know, that was like the first time I sat down at the table and had a meal with my mom. And so it was this sense of family and this sense of support Yeah, and uh, that impacted me so much that that's kind of my goal is I, I would like to move into creating more housing and okay. creating awareness. So t- talking about it, but then also saying, where can I start local? And then how can I repeat it in other counties? Because sure. this isn't just a lacrosse problem or a Wisconsin problem no, or yeah. even a Midwest problem. This is like a world problem. This is yeah. a big problem. I think that we all have the power to do small things. And so Mm -hmm. 
that's where the Lord has been leading me. I don't know why, but he said, let's, <laughs> you're not <laughs> let's done not... yet. You're not done yet. You got to do not more. Done. Yeah. No. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's, that's great. So thank you so much for opening up today and kind of sharing some mm-hmm. of your story. And I hope somebody finds something out of it and, and uh, that they can use to help improve their own lives. And if, if there's anything, anything, if they want to get in touch with you, I'll put links up to your Instagram page, uh, your Facebook page as well uh, for your book. And, and they can get in touch with you on there and ask questions and, and get some support for the things that they have that they're struggling with. But I think it's just inspirational to see where you started when you were seven and, and, or before and, and where you've gotten to today and that it is possible to have a fulfilling life, even with the struggles along the way. So thank you so much for everything today. hundred percent. Tony, thank you for having me. This yeah. has been really fun to talk about, even though it's <laughs> yep. scary. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Fun. Mm-hmm.